You're listening to The Devoted Podcast, where our desire is to be women devoted to the Word of God. We're so glad you're here, and we pray you'll be challenged and encouraged as we look to God's Word together. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Devoted Podcast. So glad you guys are listening in from wherever you are. Today, we're going to talk about Bible translation, and we're going to try not to bore you, but this is an important thing to actually look at. The Word of God is it's inspired. It's breathed out by God. We believe that in its original manuscripts, it is perfect without error. And this is really important for us to actually know this, understand this, and maybe get a little bit more of a broader context on how we got the translations that we got and what is translation all about and does it matter? So I don't want to weigh in on this by myself. Thank you so much. So I've asked Pastor Gabe Carter to come on and you guys have heard Pastor Gabe before. He's been on the podcast a couple times. I try to drag him in here a couple times a year. So Gabe, Thanks. Thanks, Amy. I know. I, 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 you know, twist his arm, say, what, what's your thought on, thoughts on this and that? And No, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. He gets all kinds of questions for me. And I just want to say, this also helps you guys that do the Bible studies and things like this. Pastor Gabe gives us all of the pastoral review. I don't know if you like it that I say that or not, but he gives us all the pastoral review on our studies. And I, I think that's really important to do. So I appreciate that as well. So Bible translation. What do we think about this? I think one of the reasons that this hit me that I I wanted to talk about this specifically was because we talk about that we can kind of get information all over the place now. What can you rely on? What sources can you rely on? People can grab data from just about anything and tweak it to fit their narrative and do that kind of thing. But as Christians, we get to rely on the fact, hopefully, that we know that we know that we know that the Word of God is true and accurate. It's not fake news. (laughs) So translation, though, we don't speak Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. And so this is a conversation and there's multiple translations out there. And so I wanted us to kind of look at a couple things about translation, maybe how it's done, but then some good ones. We're going to talk about some comparing. We're going to talk about some translations that probably wouldn't go there. So start us off with just how is a translation done? Yeah. So, you know, if you don't know, the Bible was written originally, the New Testament in Greek, the Old Testament in Hebrew with some Aramaic. So the original writings, the original manuscripts are also called autographs. That's what they were written in. They weren't written in King James English. Yeah. You, know, you know, it's not, the Apostle Paul wasn't uh, an old, you know, English guy. So they were written in the original languages. And so translation is really taking the original lang- language, the source text, and translating it into the text that we have today that, that's readable in our common language, English for us, Depending on if you speak other languages, Spanish, you know, Romanian, Russian, Ukrainian, all it's amazing to see the Bible in so many translations. Here in America, in English speaking, we have hundreds. I mean, there's hundreds of translations. So we're blessed on one one aspect to have so many different translations to choose from and to read. So really simply, translations that taking from an original. Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, and then bringing it to us today, and that's what we have. The challenge is, there's lots of challenges in translation. If you speak in the language, you know this. Trying to translate for a friend or somebody does take time, and I'm impressed that people who interpret, it's different, you know, interpretation is the one that's verbal, someone's talking and Mm -hmm. you're interpreting for them. Translations is the written form of that. But the translations that we have today, there's a kind of a breadth of 
I guess you can put them on a spectrum in English. Yeah. And so let's talk about those distinctions a little bit, because there are, like Gabe said, it it is a spectrum. They all can't follow an exact word for word or thought for thought. But maybe describe those two different areas of translation. Yeah. So, you know, I wonder if they're marketing terms, the way that they use these things, because it's like, you know, (laughs) in one camp, you have the formal equivalents, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, and then you have dynamic equivalents. But really what those are, so the formal equivalence just is, we would just say word for word. It's a word for word translation. They're striving as best they can to translate word for word. And then you move over and you have more of a thought for thought, which is the dynamic equivalence is more of a thought for thought translation. Now, the the reality is, is there is no true exact word for word translation. If you try, you know, if you ever use Google Translate and you, you put some words in there and it pops out with whatever language, now it's giving you a true word for word translation, but it's sort of clunky and it doesn't really make sense. You know, before I was a pastor, I worked for an insurance company the big insurance company, I remember we had these, they called them cultural translators. They weren't cultural interpreters. They didn't just interpret the language. You're working with really specific insurance information that's not easily interpreted. And he used this example. He was talking about in Southern California, they used to have the Got Milk ad campaign. So they used to run the Got Milk ad campaign. And you'd see, if you remember that ad campaign on big billboards, you'd see a guy or a gal, you know, and it said, Got Milk, you know, with a question mark. And you'd see them with a big milk mustache. You're like, oh, okay, Got Milk. We understand the Got Milk ad campaign. Well, they decided to translate that into Spanish because there was a large Spanish-speaking population down in Southern California. And so they translated Tango Leche right there. Which word for word. Which is word for word. And it does mean Got Milk. However, the interpretation or the what that actually meant when you ask somebody that is, are you lactating? Which is a very different meaning than what they would be going for. Correct. Yeah. So that's very a great different. example. I mean, this is similar if you've ever bought something on Amazon and, and it's from China and then you get the directions for something. Man, you can tell that just the word choice that they have used, that they weren't exactly, English was not their first language. And they've done maybe more of a word for word, but it wasn't a thought for thought, or it wasn't really translating the meaning. So that's a good example of kind of some discrepancies with that. So with the word for word and thought for thought spectrum, where do some of our common translations fall within that? Yeah. So if you can picture this spectrum, you know, on the left-hand side, you have the word for word. You probably have uh, as far as left as you could go is, is the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. It's typically used mainly. Now, some churches do use it. It's a great translation. It's, it is a little more rigid in its translation and trying to understand and what's going on because it is fairly word for word. And so with that, it's used in more academic settings. It's used in more of the studious because you're looking at the, okay, what is, you know, what's actually being said here in regards to the the real word being translated. So it doesn't flow. It doesn't flow. And so sometimes idioms are translated as they exactly are. And so you're like, I don't know what that means. You know, examples are prover in Proverbs. Proverbs is a fairly difficult book to sure. translate because you don't have a whole lot of context. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not narrative where you're looking at, you know, yep. sentence structure. You have really short, pithy statements. They're like, Deek. so, yeah. you know, if you have a, a modern translation, you'll see tons of footnotes probably all through Proverbs when you're looking through there. So NESB is, is word for word. You'd have within that the King James, the New King James, the ESV as well. And then you start to move over to the thought for thought. And with that, you have, you know, NIV, which is one of the most popular Bibles today. Is It fits in that thought for thought. 
in, you have the NIV, and the, which is the, the new international version. That would be a dynamic equivalent or a thought-for-thought thought translation. You have also the New Living Translation in there. And so, you know, there's a ton of other ones that flow within there. The NET, I mean, if you know any of those, the Holman Christian Standard, or it's now called the Christian Standard Bible, mm-hmm. the CSB, which is fairly popular. So you have those thought-for-thoughts, and they tend to look at the meaning of the thought of what's being said there and then translate it. They, they are looking at the, the original languages. It's just not a, a straight word-for-word translation like the formal equivalents. Well, and I want to say, too, because if you're hearing that thought-for-thought making it sound like that's not as good, realize that translators, they're trying to do their absolute best at being able to communicate what the meaning was there. And so, like, gave the examples you gave of just language is tricky, and so trying to figure out how that works. So, the examples we're giving you, New American Standard and ESV, NIV, these are good translations, the King James, New King James, that have been done by many scholars. So it's from a very scholarly approach on really effectively and rightly communicating the meaning. Am I saying that about right? Yeah. And I want to make a preface. I want to qualify. I am not a Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic scholar by any sense of the by any, any stretch. No. Um, nor, and none of us no, are hoping no. to become yeah. one after <laughs> this either. But I, I think it's a good podcast. I appreciate the disclaimer. And, you you know, podcast listeners know, they know Amy is a learner. Amy is not a scholar. But I do think by having some awareness of what these things are, just digging in a little bit and getting some research and some context to what is the Bible that we hold and where did it come from? I think it can help us not only to have confidence in the Bible that we're holding, but then also to be aware of other translations that we're going to we're going to talk about a few later that we need to be cautious about and why that would be. So one of the things that and again, this is just more from things that you've studied, what does it look like for a translation? Those are done by a team, correct? Yeah, so kind of get into the methodology of, of the translation. And any good translation is going to reveal what they do, their methodology. At the beginning of your Bible, if you open up the first few pages, the ones you usually skip over really quickly, which I don't blame you because you're trying to get to the Scripture, it does describe how they do yeah. what they do. And so I would encourage you, if you have an NIV or an ESV or even a New King James, or any, you know, look at the first few pages, and it talks about even some of the acronyms used in the footnotes. The footnotes and all this, they are important. They're not Scripture, but they're telling you what they're doing in interpreting or in translating. Mm-hmm. And so it's helpful mm-hmm. to you. We're, the translators are not in these good translations, they're not trying to hide stuff from you to contain, like, no, this is what we're doing. It's out in the open. So, yes, it is a team, typically, of scholars. And within that team, they don't always go to the same church. You know, they're yeah. all from, from different churches. But I would say that, you know, when it comes to a, a good translation, and the ones we all mentioned, I, I would say, are, are good translations to read, they have a conservative scholarly approach. And what I mean by that is they're actually trying to reveal to you what the original intent, what the original word is, as opposed to just construct or, or have a, a more modern view of like, no, this is actually what it means. Mm-hmm. Instead, they're going, what does it, what did the original Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, what were they saying? Yeah. And not just looking at what they intended to say. And I think that is some of the safety in numbers a little bit, too, when they do have a team. Because it would be very simple, you know, for an individual to insert kind of their own bias or their own, even with the best of intentions of not, you know, really trying to do it well, but having it so that you are bouncing it off of other scholars and getting other takes, I think you get closer to the mark just by having a multitude of counselors. Yeah, yeah. And it keeps you from, I 
guess you could call them sectarian translations, which are a sect, like a specific group. It's like, this is our Bible, you know, like the New World Translation, which we'll talk about, you know, yeah. from Jehovah's Witness, where it's, this is our thing. And, and so when you have a team that is a little bit more broad on that, the trouble is, in a little bit of that, is there, there can be, you'll see actually, what all of it's exposed. You'll see in the notes, if you look at the footnote of your Bible, why they do things at times. And so, mm-hmm. you know, why they chose this. When it comes to even the methodology, there's different manuscripts that the translators use. You know, the King James only had, back when it was translated, they only had a handful of manuscripts to really look at. Today, we have thousands upon thousands of manuscripts, and they're using newer manuscripts that have been found. They're older, but they've been found. And so there's a little bit of discrepancy in some of the manuscripts. Now, I know we're getting into some some deep things that might be really boring, but the reality is, is that we have so much evidence today that what we know is is true. You know, you might have a Mormon or, you know, a Church of Latter-day Saints guy or gal come in pairs, come up and knock on your door and, and tell you that the Bible you have has been mistranslated. It's one of their things. You know, they, they believe that the Bible is accurate as far as it's been translated correctly, and they determine what's translated correctly. We can give you full confidence the Bible has been absolutely translated correctly. What we have today is is so accurate. We have so much evidence pointing back to the original mm-hmm. autographs, the original manuscripts, just so much evidence. It's mm-hmm. overwhelming. Yeah. And we've talked about this before on the podcast, and you guys can do deeper research on this if you're curious about variants and things like that. But one of the reasons that the evidence is so astounding is because we have so many manuscripts of the Bible that it just nothing in antiquity, no other document in antiquity even comes close to comparing to the amount of evidence that we have of the Bible. So that to me is it's a fascinating thing if you're into that kind of nerdy research a little bit, because It really is amazing. So I love that we can look at that. When we are talking about these translations, and we've mentioned some good ones, there have been a couple that, especially as we look at the NIV, did a revision, right? So overall, we would say that the NIV, New International Version, is a good version. They have had the 1984, and then they had something called the TNIV, which I don't believe they even have anymore. I think they kind of got rid of that one. You can correct Correct, me if I'm wrong. And then what probably most people, if you go out to, well, I was going to say a store, but there aren't really Bible bookstores (laughs) anymore. But if you go online and you buy an NIV Bible, you're going to get a 2011 NIV. So maybe talk a little bit about what happened there. Yeah. So in trying to honestly come to the modern sensibilities of, of modern man and woman, the NIV translators went through, you know, the TNIV from my understanding, I could be wrong on this, but from my understanding, didn't do well, didn't sell well. They did go pretty far, I would say, left in regards to gender inclusivity into the scripture, changed a lot of stuff that really wasn't popular. And I think they went well outside the bounds of translating and began to really interpret and come up with their their understanding. Now, the thought for thought, then this is a little bit of a caveat. When you are doing thought for thought, translation, there has to be at some point an interpretive element in coming up with, okay, this is what we think that they're saying, because you're trying to to reveal the thought there. So the 2011, the NIV went back, 
to the drawing board and kind of brought a little bit. It seemed like they merged together the TNIV and the NIV in 2011. So now we have the NIV, which is still a great translation. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. There's still some good stuff that they did. And in, in fact, but I mean by gender inclusivity. Yeah, I was going to ask you to kind of define that. A yeah. Bit. So they there's some language that they're bringing in, you know, when it speaks of brothers, maybe they'll say brothers and sisters. And that doesn't seem like that's that big of a deal. And sometimes it's not because the indication of the day would be, hey, brothers, you know, it's it does speak to all at times you know there's groups of gals even today that say hey bro you know or, mm -hmm. or, hey hey guys oh how many times uh, do gays. i say hey guys i yeah. do it all the time so there's a little bit yep. of that that's there but in my mind there's been some pretty big astounding issues still in the niv that I'm not a big fan of. So one example of this when I was looking this up is just to maybe give you guys a little bit what we're talking about here. But in Proverbs 15, 5, in the 84 NIV, it says a fool spurns his father's discipline, but whoever heeds correction shows prudence. But the 2011 NIV changed that to say a fool spurns a parent's discipline, but whoever heeds correction shows prudence. Now, I hope what you're hearing with Gabe and I are saying is like the meaning of what the NIV is saying here is it's accurate. We're not losing things. It's, it's a good translation as far as like its meaning. But the criticism I think that I have is, you know, when you look that up, and I certainly I have to rely on scholars, I have no clue. But the actual Hebrew for the word there it is male. It's father. Mm -hmm. It's not parent. So, I mean, I understand when the context is leading the translator to say, refer to all mankind or all humanity, and if that's what the word merits. But there's times with the gender inclusivity with the 2011-84, and I'm not so sure, maybe even the CSB. I don't know if you can speak to that or not. But because there is more of that gender inclusivity in the language, if it doesn't say that it's to yeah. be all inclusive, I don't know that it should be, you know, yeah. but I'm kind of hard on that. <laughs> well, and it's that methodology is actually in the beginning pages of an NIV Bible. So you can read that in there. The issue with that one right there is the father. And you might be like, well, he is a, the father is a parent. You're like, what's right. the problem? Honestly, it's the cumulative evidence. There's a lot of verses where it's taking the father out. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an issue. Like there's, there's yeah. we have an issue of fatherlessness in our country and in this world. And, and that's not just the problem is the, our modern day problems, but removing the father out of the picture does, does some damage. You know, even when it talks about in the old Testament, you know, when a king would die, he'd be buried with his father, you know, in the grave of his father, it would, or go to be with his fathers, it would say his family. Mm. And, and so you're, you're removing this element there that it's saying the same thing. It is. And I have to admit, like, it's we're going to understand, OK, it makes sense. But you're slowly kind of removing away the father out of that. That, in my mind, is an issue. At the same time, you know, I think it's Second Timothy or First Timothy 2.12. Yeah, that's the one that I think we had had a pod. I think you oh, had me on Gabe, the podcast. I think on like my third <laughs> podcast we ever did. The, the podcast is coming up on its two year oh, birthday. Great. And I think that third one, I just came right out of the gate with, yeah. hey, let's talk about this. Yeah. Where it says, you know, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man and she must be silent. That's the NIV 84. Yep. And then the 2011 version says, I do not per permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man and she must be quiet. Now you're like, what? Well, it means the same thing. Well, one says to have authority. One means to assume authority. Yeah. yeah. And I think I've heard the rebut on this is the, the translators of the NIV 2011 were saying, actually, you know, what we mean by assume is like, you know, when the president assumes the office of the president, he's, a, mm -hmm. he's take, he has the office. 
but most of us in common language, when we say assume, that's not what we mean. We don't mean you're taking it like we are assuming. Yeah. Yeah. But as I've read, you know, the responses to that by uh, scholars, the again, the issue is just like with that it's not parent. It actually is a male word that is used for father in Proverbs. In this one, there is nothing that is assumed. It is actually authority. And so the the argument there that they, and like Gabe said, that can be a little bit of a cumulative thing as you go through and and just, you start to almost feel like there's a leaning because there's this open door then because people that ascribe to more of a feminist or a liberal interpretation of scripture will say, well, this is, you know, I'm not taking the authority. If it's given to me, then that's fine, but I'm not assuming it myself. And so that's kind of the the tack they take on that passage to use that to say, see, women can lead in the church and this is okay. And to kind of give you an example, you know, the ESV, which is a word-for-word translation, when they put brothers in there, they'll put a footnote and down in the bottom, they'll say brothers or sisters. And I think that's a proper way of doing it because mm-hmm. they're, they're leaving mm-hmm. in the text what it actually says in Greek. Mm-hmm. And then they're down below saying, this is how they understood it, as mm-hmm. opposed to just putting it in the mm-hmm. text saying, this is what the Bible said. In my mind, that it's a better way, just the way my mind works anyways, to do that. So any other than the ones we've just mentioned for the 84, is there any like notable t- uh, translation, like comparisons that you think are helpful or... In the NIV, how they're helpful? Either NIV or ESV, maybe just, you know, are there things that comparing like a word for word and a thought for thought? Yeah. That perhaps is... Well, no, and I think that that's a great... I mean, I would recommend that for your own Bible study, have a word for word and a thought for thought. Yeah. They're very helpful in in getting that kind of a fuller understanding Mm -hmm. of what's being said there. I find it very helpful. Like I do check the NIV at times. I do look... I primarily read the ESV these days, but I still check. I All the verses I have memorized in my head are still New King James. So even if I'm reading the ESV, I find myself reading, like saying out loud, New King James is kind of an old habit to yep. break. I do that with King James because yeah. I memorized everything in the King James. <laughs> and so sometimes it still just it comes out or 84 NIV too. So. Yeah, it is helpful to have a dynamic equivalent or a thought for thought Bible, such as, you know, the NIV. The NET is also a good one. It's I think it's primarily online. I don't think they print it. The thing about the NET Bible is that they actually put all of the footnotes of why they do what they do and what why they chose what they chose if you wanted to, to look into uh, all that. Okay. It's almost like their footnote is as big as their Bible, which is kind of funny. That's kind of amazing. So you kind of alluded to this a little bit, but there's some translations that we wouldn't recommend. And what are a couple of those? Well, and some of you might be listening going, well, you haven't said the Bible I read. And if we name a Bible that's like, hey, we have some concerns about it, don't feel like we're picking on you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there are some, you know, in, when it comes to translation, the thought for thought and the word for word, that's translation. Yep. There are other Bibles out there, quote unquote Bibles, that are sold that you can purchase and you can read. You can even, if you use the Bible app, you can pull them up, such as the message. Mm-hmm. But the message is a, is a paraphrase. It's not a true thought for thought or word for word translation. So maybe define that a little bit. What is the difference between a paraphrase and a translation? Yeah, so the the translation or the the translation is using the original languages mm-hmm. and trying to translate them into English language, the modern English language. The paraphrase is taking typically it's taking the English language and paraphrasing it, rephrasing it in the author's thoughts. Now, in the case of the message, though, I don't know about the living translation. I remember listening to the... It's one author as well. 
Now, the Living Bible was old. The Living Bible is the Living Bible is a paraphrase. The New Living, the New Living Translation is a that's thought an for actual thought. thought for thought. Okay, mm-hmm. but then the message, though he, I believe in his methodology, he said he did go to the Greek language, to the actual languages. Correct. It's my understanding too is he could read the Greek, but he calls it a paraphrase. He does not call it a translation. Mm-hmm. He's very careful about saying this is not a translation. It, well, and it's a paraphrase. Really, is simply just kind of a retelling of something in your mm-hmm. own words. Mm-hmm. And it's helpful. And this is a helpful practice. I wouldn't call it scripture. You know, if you want to understand the Bible better, it helps in your own mind after you've read something to paraphrase what you sure. read. Yeah. To go, what did I just read? Just to, you know, if you're reading a narrative, what happened in that story in your own, but I wouldn't market it as a Bible. I just right. paraphrased, you know, here's the Gabe Carter Bible. Uh oh. You know, <laughs> like, right. no, this is just, it's helpful in a it, technique to, to help your brain remember stuff. Yeah. So if you love the message, please don't hear that we're saying, like, don't ever use that. I just couldn't argue the fact that you would use that as your actual Bible, like your study Bible. To me, I think it's more of a just something that complements that you could look at. I'm not a huge fan of the message, but some people love it. Yeah. Well, and the, and the caution with that, we don't want to just say, hey, don't stay away from it just, just because we have, you know, weird feelings right. about it. Right. When it is one author, it really is what he or she thinks. So it really is more of just their thoughts about that section of scripture or that chapter. And so there is some caution that you should approach saying, okay, this is what this pastor thinks about the Bible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's not that there's anything wrong with that, but just know that it is what it is. Yeah, it's not a true Bible in the sense of here's what actually was written and passed down from. But then there's some other actual translations, like you mentioned the New World Translation. Is that the correct one? Correct. Yeah. The New World Translation, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, this is their translation that they use that is, you know, a translation. Just to briefly touch on this one, it's it's heretical. It's a sectarian translation where they're trying to really add things in there to defend their own doctrine. And their own doctrine is not within the pale of orthodoxy. And it's very unorthodox. So, you know, for instance, John 1.1 is the classic case of this. And this is what the Jehovah's Witness Bible says. The New World Translation says, in the beginning was the word. Like, oh, check. Okay. And the word was with God. Check. Got that. It sounds right. And the word was a God. Like, wait, huh? <laughs> so, I mean, that that little A put right yeah. there changes that a whole, whole yeah. yeah, the rest of the Bible. Yeah. So that's one I would steer very clear from. It might be good if you ever wanted just to compare, like, hey, this is what it says in there to do a comparative of some of the, the text. If you have Jehovah's Witness family members or friends to look at, see, but there, it is very, very much outside the pale of orthodoxy in in Bible translation. Another translation that has come up just in the last couple of years is the Passion Translation. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about this one a little bit because I, I think that there are some flags with this. You know, we've been talking about what makes up a good translation, one of those things being that it has a team of, of scholars and, you know, people with a lot of credentials in the original languages to be able to bring that, bring a specific methodology to their task of translating. In the case of the Passion Translation, it is written by one guy, which, so that should kind of be a flag because we're not talking about a paraphrase. He claims it to be a translation. So what is the Passion Translation, if you were to, where does that one land on the map? Yeah, it, it would be a, paraphrase in my mind. I The website itself calls it a translation. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to call 
Brian Simmons, who's the author here, a liar necessarily. I don't, I don't know, but what's being said here, you know, from my understanding and, and the research I've done, I know there's been some videos produced out there and some papers written from some scholars in looking at the Passion Translation text to see what Greek was being used in the translation of the New Testament. And they, there's none. It's There's so much added into it that it really isn't a necessarily a a straight-up translation from the Greek in the New Testament. I know he references mentioning looking at the Syriac manuscripts, which were also translations, which is interesting to me. But so, yeah, the Passion Translation trademark, which is funny, you always see the trademark after that, I wouldn't consider it a translation at all. Yeah. This one, it just kind of popped up. I was actually looking at a Christian or a church website recently that had any scriptures that it referenced. It referenced the Passion Translation. And it, honestly, at first, I didn't even recognize it. the acronym that I have. I was like, what is, what is this translation? Yeah, TPT. Yeah. So I kind of looked it up and then started going down this rabbit hole of looking into what the Passion Translation was. And I was pretty concerned on a lot of levels. And I think for me, one of the things about the Passion that is concerning is the types of how much it adds to scripture as far as specific words and things that are not in the actual original text too. So, and there's a lot of adding. Anytime, I just get nervous. Anytime I hear that somebody's adding a bunch of things to the Bible, that gives me substantial pause. Yeah, even according to their their website, the translation philosophy they use is essential equivalency, which is, you know, it's just another, it's, in my mind, it's just a marketing term. He's saying it's essentially what what the original authors meant. And what so is the he Lord trying to meant. equate it with a uh, thought for thought then? No, because he's putting it outside of... Something totally different. Totally different. It's the essential meaning of God's original message found in the biblical languages to modern English is, is what's being said there. But he, he alone is the authority on that. And that should cause just like ee, some red flags. As we read, we could do some comparison of, of the verses. When you read it, to me, I'm like, I, I'm uncomfortable reading it just because it, it sounds strange mm-hmm. to me. It doesn't really fit. And not being great, you know, a biblical Greek scholar, but I can look at this going, that, I don't think that's what that means. Yeah. So, and just to give you a couple examples of what I mean by uh, some of the things that it adds. So, for example, the word prophetic is in the ESV translation in the New Testament. It's in there four times. But in the Passion Translation, it's in there 28 times. It puts the word anointed, which is in the ESV 15 times, 220 times in the Passion Translation that it, it translates that word. And it also puts the word activate, in, which is only in the Passion Translation. It's actually not found in other translations. And whenever it uses activate, it puts it in relation to spiritual gifts. So, I mean, I just give these as a couple examples of when you mentioned, Gabe, that there are these sectarian ideas of perhaps in this case, it is a individual. It's not a team of scholars. It's a individual that it would seem that he's inserting language that supports his theology. Yeah. And that should be a warning. I mean, Bible translation should always strive to be Mm-hmm. for clarity yeah. and for breadth. Like we want more people to read the Bible. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the the thought for thought translation, the idea there is to make it easier to read and to make it readable for those who might not have a great reading comprehension or ability to read. And that's, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Praise the Lord for that. But in the Passion Translation, for instance, to me, it, it seems like it's obscured clarity. It's made it 
you know, here's, an, for instance, in John 1, 1, which I read to you mm-hmm. in the New World Translation, in the Passion, it says, in the very beginning, the living expression was already there, and the living expression was with God, yet fully God. And I honestly don't know what that means. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't know what the, I mean, the living expression, I mean, some of these phrases, I'm like, it's so out, out mm-hmm. there. I don't think that the, most people who would read, if you, you know, drop this off to people in a desert, I, I don't think of the living expression. Mm-hmm. Okay, what's mm-hmm. the living expression? Well, what do you say to people that, you know, because some people read that and they have almost an emotional response to it. Like they can say, man, I've just been really impacted by this translation and it has, it's just helped me in my walk so much. What What is your response to somebody who just feels like they have been so impacted by yeah, this? Yeah, and I would, you know, I would say it's probably, the emotion's probably true there. I mean, mm-hmm. Brian, he seems to be a some of his writing really is flowery and, and poetic and evocative, if I could use that word, mm-hmm. in bringing some emotion up. But emotion isn't the determining factor of, of what we do. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that the Lord is opposed to emotion or he's not stoic of emotion. And no, he's not, not stoic. We read his emotion all through Scripture. We should not be apathetic in life and have zero emotion. Be kind of like a sociopath that feels nothing. Sure. No, we are emotional creatures, but not primarily emotional. We do. We should be led, honestly, by the Lord in our thought process and making decisions. And sometimes emotions do follow. Our emotions mm-hmm. don't always line up. You know, I think of David, you know, why are you cast down on my soul? Hope now in God. Like he he is willing, he's he's using his mind, he's using his reason to hope in God because his soul is cast down. It's emotionally overburdened. And he's not looking to just be whipped up in an emotional frenzy, but instead he's like, he's telling his, his emotions, hope in God, like right. hope now in God. Yeah. You know, and I think that we see a lot of flags with this particular translation with the passion, but I wonder that one in particular, just it's the way it, goes to the emotional court. And perhaps it's because women, just by and large, we are more emotional creatures, and that's not a bad thing. That is the way that God wired us to be. But I also fear that a lot of times women were more inclined to lead with our emotion as well. And so you can be very attracted to a translation like this. And I'm sorry, guys, if you could see the air quotes, I really I'm with Gabe on this one. I don't really feel like this is a translation per se, but more of a paraphrase. But you can read something that is very emotional and it can just be, you know, so great. But I I fear that sometimes we could then let that distract us from maybe what is really true. And the great example with David in the Psalms is not letting emotion lead. There is whether the whether the passion translation makes you feel so great. If it's not really what the Bible says, what the Bible says is it has to trump that. If there's anything you learned from this podcast, I yeah. think that that's it right there. Yeah. Is that the word of God should trump? In fact, he honors his word. Like it's his word is foundational. And if we're being led by our own emotion, and you know, this is something that even as you know, when we do worship and in church, like to think through some of these things, we're not just just trying to, you know, move people through emotion and but at the same time, we're not trying to cut out all emotion from all things. There's a balance in that. But we want to be as true as we can to the Word of God and as accurate as we can understand Scripture. I mean, this is how—I think we talked even before, you know, the the 
Revelation, not the book of Revelation, but the revelation of God to us is both in in nature, you know, in Revelation, or excuse me, Romans chapter one, we see there that no man is that excuse because we can see God there in general revelation, wherever he's at. In creation, we see an, an order of things. And then in, in, you know, chapter two, we know we have an internal knower. We have a, a conscience that tells us, you know, it gets broken, but we have this mm-hmm. this knower that's in us telling us right and wrong, but that's an indication of God. But apart from that, we wouldn't know Christ. And this is where scripture comes into play. And he reveals himself in special revelation of who he is, of his heart for us. And not just, you know, and I think if we obscure it with just emotional language that's tucked in alongside of things, I think we're, we're actually losing the real meaning of scripture. And in one verse, perhaps not super dangerous, but again, I think you see that cumulative approach or, or maybe that cumulative property Correct. that exists yeah. with that is just over and over and over. It can really influence, you know, perhaps your whole perspective on scripture itself. I think that's such an important point that you bring up and, and you know, maybe we'll start to wrap up with that. But one of the things that we're talking about is I think that brings to the point why translation matters. We're not trying to poke holes and just find all these faults in translations because we are so thankful for the very scholarly work that's been done that has given us these amazing resources. And like Gabe said, I think it's fantastic. You, you want to pull an ESV and, a, and an NLT and, you know, stick them side by side and be able to study the word together. That's fantastic. But I do want to leave us with the fact that it does matter on what our translation is. So, Make sure you're, you know, at least knowing maybe a little bit of methodology, even if you don't want to get into the scholarly weeds on it, knowing that you can stand by a reputable translation. Yeah. And if you are reading one of these translations that we mentioned, like the message or the passion translation, or you know friends that are, don't react. Yeah, okay. <laughs> respond. Yeah. You know, Proverbs tells yeah. us the righteous man ponders how to respond to every man. And so respond to them. I think we as Christians too can, you know, this, even in this podcast, we're not trying to react to this. Oh, did you hear about this new translation? But to do a measured response mm-hmm. and to say, we want to steer you towards a solid tested you know, in time scripture or Bible translation, ESV is a great translation. NIV is good, but just be on the lookout Mm -hmm. that there is some gender inclusivity stuff that's in there. Be cautious with it. I would recommend if you're one that likes to dive into the word and wants to study, which I would encourage all of us should be as Christians, Mm -hmm. have a word for word translation. That's kind of your go-to Bible and then have some other paraphrase Bibles as references to kind of look at how do they translate this? How did this, this come about? So, yeah, I mean, you can have full confidence in the Word of God that we have today. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about just the way things were translated. But be cautious. There are those that, that do want to, you know, mistranslate the Bible, that are the sectarian translations that are out there. And there's, again, there's hundreds and hundreds of translations. But the Lord is faithful. Mm-hmm. If I could say anything, the Lord is is so, so faithful. And I do think if you ask, you seek, you knock, he's going to lead you to truth and he'll lead you to what you should be reading. And if you're not one that can read the NASB or the ESV because it's hard to read, it's okay if you're reading the NIV. That's okay. It's easier to read. It's not like you're in sin. I think we can kind of feel like, oh, no, I'm in error. I need to find what's the one translation where we Pastor Brett teaches through the King James Bible. We're not a King James only church. We are not a King James only church. I have to repeat that. 
Yeah. You know, I want to read Second Peter one twenty because this this is truly where our confidence is. And it, it, Second Peter one twenty through twenty one says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along the Holy Spirit. I think uh, it's such a great reminder that men are going to do their best to do this, but ultimately, as we rely on the Lord, on the Holy Spirit, that he is the one that breathed into this is really the confidence that we need. Yep. All right. Well, I hope we didn't scare anybody about translations. If you have any questions, you can always, you know, shoot them our way. But I guess what I would recommend more than anything, gals, is just to find a good translation. And if you have questions, maybe do some research and look into it a little bit more. But at the same time, read your Bible. Read your Bible. Just read your Bible. I think more than anything, that's what we just want to be all about. So with that, we'll leave you with that to go find a good translation and start reading. Thank you for tuning in to The Devoted Podcast. We are a ministry of Athey Creek Christian Fellowship in West Lynn, Oregon. For more resources, or if you need prayer or encouragement, send us an email at devotedpodcast at atheycreek.com.